trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where I encourage wrong thinkers to gather as often as they can and to assert ownership of their own worldview. Now, that doesn't mean, then, that you just conveniently repeat everything that I say. Nope. This is about thinking for yourself. So for those who say, well, what exactly is your agenda, Brian? My agenda is to brainwash you into thinking for yourself, plain and simple. I want you to think clearly and independently because that is our highest duty as a citizen during times of crisis. And I think most people, reasonable people, would agree that these are chaotic times. In fact, there are multiple overlapping crises right now going on all around us. It's in our interest to better understand the world, what's actually going on, to sift fact from fiction, and then to lay claim to what we hold dear. Now, I'm hoping reality and truth are among those things. We'll get to that in a few minutes. I've actually got a clip I want to share with you from uh, from Matt Walsh's uh, new new show, What is a Woman? His uh, movie that he made, holy cow. You want to see how truth-averse officialdom has become over the last few years? It's astonishing. And I, and I don't astonish easily because I've been paying attention, as I'm sure you have as well. Nevertheless, we're going to start with some fun today. And <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, it's actually one of the best things you're going to read all week is a link that I'm including in my show notes from El Gato Malo, Bad Catitude Substack. This is, uh, this is why public health experts never want to fight the amateurs. Now, I have, uh, I have a mild background, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu to be specific, but what uh, El Gato Malo is talking about here is absolutely true, and I've seen this with my own eyes. And that is, you know, there's, there are certain disciplines in which, you know, there's, there's this mystique and, and, and almost this reverence where, where people are just like, oh, this is, this is almost like magic to see. And people would come to, to the school where I trained in and, and would challenge, you know, we want to test my system against yours. And you very quickly learned what, uh, what was real versus what was just show. Well, the same thing is true in terms of how public health experts like to have this aura of infallibility and, and, oh, they know everything. They walk a few inches above the ground. Why, they're not like the rest of us. But it's not true. And there are amateurs out there, investigative journalists and doctors. and, and, And yes, I know I'm including some doctors and amateurs, but what I'm saying is not professional public health experts who nonetheless have, have blown things wide open in terms of the distortion and sometimes outright lies that were given to us during the COVID response. Here's how Elgato Malo puts it. He says, back in high school long ago, <clears throat> long ago, I was a wrestler. Pretty good, won some tournaments, captained a high school team. Nothing earth-shattering, but no slouch either. He says, it was later on I picked up Muay Thai, that's Thai kickboxing. This was back in the 90s, long before it was trendy. And when the germs were, or the gyms rather, were dirty, hard, fighter-only affairs. Nobody came for Thai Bo. You came because you aspired to full contact. 
Now, he says, I was a vaguely talented amateur with a winning record in the ring against other vaguely talented amateurs, but no hope of ever vaulting up to the next level. If you'd offered me a fight against a pro, I'd have said, no way. I'd have gotten my head torn off, and I knew it. Now, that sort of thing was not subtle. You knew how expert you were, and you knew it because you fought, and there's nowhere to hide in training, sparring, or especially the ring with other people who aspire to be fighters, too. Everyone had plans, everyone got punched in the face, and then you found out whether and to what extent your plan could survive contact with reality. And if you didn't know if you were better than someone, well, there was an easy way to find out. Now, he says there were other arts, too. The rarefied Shaolin mystics, karate kiddos, and taekwondozers all looked terribly splendid with their flying kicks and punch flurries and wudan wisdom. Hell, he says they scared me early on. Their exclusive mystique made for great marketing, but it was bad product. And this really became obvious. Many so-called fighting experts were absolute cupcakes, and you could dismantle many a black belt without breaking a sweat. He says, none of them wanted to fight with us. He says, well, maybe me, but not the deeply scary dudes I trained with. They would not get in the ring. Their masters and sifus would not come within a country mile of our instructors if it looked like fight day. So this allowed delusions to persist. I mean, the flying triple lotus kick can wow the crowd, but on defend yourself against a trained opponent day, not so much. But if you've never taken it out for a spin, how would you know? He says, our teachers and coaches were from Thailand. They called all these claims in flashy fighting woo-woo. Like, you bring that woo-woo into the ring, you get killed. And they were right. We saw it when the bold ones tried, or we picked a student up from some dragon academy. And this is why the ability to deny that our ring existed and was valid mattered so much to them. It preserved the mystique of the McDojo factories of do 18 months and you'll be a black belt in TKD and disciples that would only engage with one another in controlled, contrived circumstances where it was safe. Most astonishing, of those those who did come, many walked in utterly sure they were about to dominate. None did. Now, he says, for a long time, this myth held. I know karate was a fearsome claim. Then a funny thing happened. The truth got loose. MMA slid onto the scene and picked up all the techniques that worked from kickboxing and Muay Thai to jiu-jitsu, wrestling, and whatever else looked useful. No dancing around and looking impressive. All applied fighting. And so Elgato Malo says it was easy for me to see coming because it was things I'd done before. He says I had some experience, some basic grounding, and it mopped the floor with woo-woo. He says, what people forget is that there was this big early hope that the masters of woo-woo were going to come and silence these upstarts. Some saffron monk from the secret valley whose name may not be spoken would float in and clean house. Instead, anyone who tried got eviscerated, and very, very quickly these disciples found reasons to stay on mountaintops. The mismatch was far too obvious. And nothing solves the mystique of the lifetime woo-woo practitioner like getting knocked out in 30 seconds by some third-year fighter from a good school. The true power of woo-woo is making you too afraid to challenge it. And a lot more of the world works like this than you think because woo-woo is absolutely freaking everywhere. That's what makes this question from longtime Gato pal Jordan Schachtel so wonderfully poignant. Jordan Schachtel posted... It still kind of boggles the mind that as late as mid-1990s, nobody really knew how to fight another human. 
Millions of years of human history and the entire population remained clueless as exposed to the world by Hoist Gracie. The early UFCs are worth your time. It is also evidence of an amazing evolution in the fight game over only 25 or so years. Today's lowest-ranked fighters in the amateur leagues would easily beat up Gracie in round one. Yep, UFC 1 exposed the entire American martial arts industry as a bunch of McDojos. And he says, I wonder if there could be similar awakenings in other fields today. And someone replying to Jordan said, well, you know, back when everyone's dad knew karate and you thought Mr. Miyagi would destroy anyone, who knew the answer was kickboxing mixed with proficient wrestling and jujitsu? Now, can anyone else think of a field like this? Asks Elgato Malo. Oh, you mean like those <clears throat> public health frauds from their nonsense credential factories having to compete in real time with people who can actually do science, data, and statistics? He says, because I sure saw a lot of alleged black belts and sifus choked out by newbies over the last two years. Now, he says, I'm not going to mince words here. Nearly all the policy arm of public health is woo-woo. These alleged epidemiologists and modelers and academics, basically the ones you're going to see all over the TV talk shows, were a bunch of cloistered frauds pushing hocus-pocus from mountaintop temples, and they learned nothing. They got this wrong in March of 2020. They were still getting it wrong two years later. It's all woo-woo and fear-mongering. Their track records stink. This field has long been mostly a joke with a few bright spots, generally far from the public policy portion of this ecosystem of mysticism. From SAGE to the CDC, the UW to the NIH, it's been complete and total woo-woo. Their models didn't just fail, they were so bad, they were non-deterministic and could not even replicate their own results. They rode in on big, white, woo-woo horses, laden with credentials and made bold claims of their prowess and prescience. They legitimately had no idea they were not world champ, top of the game, stone cold epic killers because they'd never been outside. It was 15 years of patty cake training to get ready for the gold medal round in Olympic boxing. Total misses on swine flu and Zika and dengue and Ebola comes to America had been largely ignored. And they had no idea that they were in reality stunningly, embarrassingly bad at this. And then suddenly they're in the big leagues and they got knocked out in the first round in front of everyone because they didn't know any better than to jump in a ring for which they were unqualified. All their predictions were wrong, their recommendations false and ill-advised. It was just jumping around and tossing out jargon and mathiness as though it implied knowing how to fight a disease. I'm going to come back to this commentary in a few moments, but do you see why I'm saying this may be the best thing you can read all day? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to give a shout-out to my uh, sponsors, including Sewing and Quilting Center. You can go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. That's their website. If you live in southern Utah, and I mean anywhere within 200 miles of southern Utah, you should probably just go ahead and visit their store located on South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Why would you want to go there? I know, especially if you're a big, tough, manly man. Well, what do I want to know about sewing? Um, trust me, even if you are a big, tough, manly man, you know someone who really loves to create things. And when, when I tell you that sewing is something that is taken seriously, you can't appreciate how seriously until you go someplace like your county fair 
and visit the exhibit halls where people submit, you know, entries of things I've created. You know, this is a jar of pickles that I canned, you know, for this year. And and you get to see these things judged and, and people, uh, you know, awarded ribbons, blue ribbons, red ribbons, and so forth for their efforts. Check out what people can create through quilting, through sewing, through embroidery, artworks, in, in every bit the tradition of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, we're talking amazing stuff. I tell you this because Sewing and Quilting Center has all the tools that you need to do it. They can sell you the machines from entry-level sewing machines right up to the big top dollar long-arm quilting machines. They can train you how to use your machine, and they can fix your machine when it needs service. They also have all the supplies you need. Click on the link I provide in my show notes. I think you'll be glad you did. All right, back to the article from El Gato Malo. This is from the uh, Bad Catitude Substack about why public health experts never want to step into the ring because they uh, <clears throat> they don't want to fight the amateurs on public policy because there are amateurs, I'm putting that in quotation marks, that are better at deciphering the data, the statistics, the science behind whatever is being proposed. Elgato Mallo <clears throat> talks about how all of these recommendations that they gave us that were false or ill-advised amounted to the same thing as the, the karate experts out there jumping around, throwing out jargon, you know, uh, pretending that they knew how to fight a disease. But this was actually kung fu theater that we watched die in real time. And he says, most amusing was what it elicited from those who knew how to fight who took one look and, and you knew that the fraud was obvious. It was seven-year-olds yelling, yeah, and tripping over their own feet. Now, he says, many, probably most of us that got drawn into this debate, were not grounded in epidemiology. And honestly, that's probably why you were able to see the problem. If you actually knew any small part, or how any small part of this worked, you could see that the experts were doing that bit wrong. So you grabbed whatever thread looked off to you and you started pulling. And it rapidly became obvious that this was neither as complex nor as obscure as was being made out. It was just jargon and authority being used to intimidate and to impress those unfamiliar with what science is supposed to look like, which unfortunately is most of the public. But if you knew biology or drug or drug trial design, statistics, data handling, or uh, inferential and deductive reasoning, you could rapidly catch and exceed the mendacious monasteries of public health and so people came from all over finance and academia and physics and chemistry and the life sciences. Actuaries rode roughshod over PhDs in epidemiology. People who built HFT algos looked at sage models and couldn't stop laughing for a week. His point is, the fight against the experts was grossly unfair. But remember, these experts were reared on woo-woo. They'd never been in a real ring with, a, with real techniques and real people who came from spaces where you had to be right, not tenured, and where nobody cares about your credentials or your shiny job title or getting or, you know, kowtowed to getting Grant Moolah to run your study and have a career. What they cared about was whether you could impose order on data, make meaningful predictions, and support your claims in open debate. And the early clashes were telling. He says, I was astonished over and over when engaging with people who ran departments at universities and government agencies to find that they lacked grounding in statistics and often in science. Many had barely read the works of their own space or had done so so selectively as to amount to the same thing. The wizards of woo-woo did what they always do. 
Once they saw they were outmatched, they sought not to overcome opposition in the arena, but to bar others from it, to intimidate with credentials, dismiss through ad hominem, and appeal to authority and to prevent speech and publication even from their own class. To go against the teachings of the great woo-woo and nevermore shall they gain grant money, tenure, or sinecure. Trust no one who we have not anointed as trustworthy. Now he says it's entirely circular. Only they give, who give out credentials can be trusted because you can only trust those with credentials. That's how you spot woo-woo. Look for the groups claiming prowess validated by credentials that they themselves bestowed. And if you're really that good, step in the ring, bring your ideas and data and process and render it open. Let's fight and see what hypotheses emerge as validated. See, good fighters want to be tested, but the ones who are all talk do not. And this is true in every field of human endeavor. And as an indicator, it's nearly infallible. Now, he says, in 2019, I legitimately was not aware of what a near total sham public health is. I'd never seen them step into the octagon. By mid-2020, it was so manifestly obvious that no one with real data, statistics, or science chops could miss it. It took Team Reality three months to go from never looked at this before to basic parody with public health, and in three more, it had overrun the discipline. Watching Michael Levitt basically teach a whole field how to model epidemics was amazing. He says it took him a couple of months to nail models that vastly outperformed any others I saw. Apparently, they don't just hand out Nobel Prizes in chemistry for having a winning smile. Watching hilarious woo-woo like the hammer and dance get arm-barred into submission by uh, people that I knew that rather knew how to spot jumps of assumptive hand-waving was hilarious. He says, I built a bunch of models by hand in Excel using Google, Google mobility data that proved beyond any reasonable doubt that lockdowns did not bend curves and that all the Pacific Rim efficacy was really just pre-existing immunity from prior SARS-like viruses. Meanwhile, the public health experts could not even figure out that the signal was seasonal and were embarrassing themselves, claiming Peru as a great example of lockdowns working right before it underwent the worst COVID spike in the world a few minutes later. The experts, he says, have had a really bad two years. Their credentials and lazy appeals to authority did not stand up to the arena. And they stopped wanting to talk to us at all the... Uh, at all, and the adopted epithets like denier and stances like the science is settled became part of our parlance. But he says those are the weasel words of defeated woo-woo hiding its losses. Now, rotate the shape again. Do you really think it's just this discipline of authorities and experts that's so riddled with rot and unfit for combat? Because it isn't, and he says it's not even one of the worst. And this incentive to exclude the uninitiated from the debate is only going to rise this is going to be the fight of our time, the rearguard action of ivory towers seeking to preserve undeserved stature and prerogative as the keepers of science that technocracy may remain in power. I won't talk to you because you do not understand is a weak dodge <clears throat> from those who keep getting it so systemically wrong. The world is full of people who are very good at things, good at seeing patterns, good at handling data, good at assessing evidence and reaching conclusions. And the world is highly networked now, and that segment is getting more and more access to the data. And every problem is shallow to someone. If you don't know the answer, the best step is to show the problem to lots of people. Someone in some far-flung field will say, oh, we have a problem like that in our field, too. Here's how we solve it. 
That's the clear path for one seeking actual answers and the path no one seeking to prop up a phony baloney pool of purported knowledge would ever dare to tread. Thus, open data and inquiry, characterized by engagement, not opprobrium, is the shibboleth of sound science. Hiding behind a process of peer review by friendly fellow woo-woo aficionados to exclude debate and criticism from outsiders and to to pantomime adversarial assessment is just woo-woo on top of woo-woo. It generates the appearance of fact-checking, but it's really antithesis. Only the Guild gets to decide what can be approved and spoken of, and these bodies exist to defend ideology and careers, not to pursue truths and paradigm shifts. Like I say, this may be the best thing you read all week long. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Go check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to mention Dixie Chiropractic, one of my sponsors here. That's Dr. Ward Wagner and his amazing staff. They are there. They exist to help people who are dealing with pain, whether that pain comes from car accident injuries, bulging herniated discs, neuropathy. These are just three examples of some of the pain you may be dealing with. Check out some of these specials, which you can... Examine for yourself at DixieCairo.com. That's their website. For the bulging herniated disc, here's a $99 intro special. That includes two treatments plus a massage. $99? That's a killer deal. If you have neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Get on the horn there. Actually, get online if you want to. DixieCairo.com. Again, this is Dixie Chiropractic, Dr. Ward Wagner. Set up an appointment. As you do, tell them you heard this on my program. Let them know that their message reached your ears. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, federal overreach. I mean, the president was just on TV last night. I'm sorry, I, I was washing my hair or something. I, I just I don't even listen anymore when politicians, particularly at the federal level, speak because so much of it is just it's it's political passion plays you know they're they're playing to the cameras and this is what we're gonna do and i'm to the point where federal overreach is so predictable something happens or even if nothing happens i just know that they're gonna get out there and and bloviate about uh, this is what we have to do and it's imperative that we get rid of all cars that we get rid of all guns that we get rid of all chickens or whatever it is that they're working on their words have lost all meaning i don't care because I don't live by their permission. To the best of my ability, I just go on with my life and, you know, they can say whatever they want. But when it comes to dealing with unconstitutional acts, I realize ignoring them only goes so far. That's why I want to share with you a commentary from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center, Lysander Spooner's strategy to stop unconstitutional acts. Now, if you don't know who Lysander Spooner was, Well, you soon will, but this guy had a brilliant mind. And what Spooner had to say, I think, is worthy of consideration. Now, he pushes me to some pretty uncomfortable places, too, because he he had a pretty big um, beef with the U.S. Constitution. As in, he says, that Constitution 
was either so poorly written as to prevent tyranny or it actually was written so as to enable it. And it's tough to argue with his logic on this. Now, I happen to hold that I I believe the Constitution had uh, some divine help in being written. To the extent that it's flawed, I think, yep, that's because you had human beings writing it. But I also personally, I believe that that God raised up the individuals who who wrote that and that uh, the principles on which it is based are as sound as can be. We just have a really hard time following through on actually living up to those principles. But in a word, what can you do to stop unconstitutional acts? Well, the word is resist. Mike Meharry says that was Lysander Spooner's strategy to stop unconstitutional acts that was very much in line with James Madison and other prominent founders. Now, Spooner, for those who don't know, was a prominent 19th century slavery abolitionist. He's well known in libertarian and anarchist circles for saying the Constitution either authorized the government we got or it was powerless to stop it. In either case, he said it is unfit to exist. But many don't know that Spooner also wrote quite a bit about the legal meaning of the Constitution and strategy to defend and advance liberty. In response, for instance, to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, Spooner penned a pamphlet titled A Defense for Fugitive Slaves. Now, just as a reminder here, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 ranks as one of the most insidious laws in American history. It denied a black person accused of escaping slavery any semblance of due process. A white man could basically drag a black person south into slavery merely on the power of his word. This even put people born free in the north under the constant threat of being snatched up and sent to slavery. So the first part of Spooner's pamphlet builds a strong seven-point case against the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act. Number one, they authorized the delivery of slaves without a trial by jury. Number two, the commissioners appointed by the Act of 1850 are not constitutional tribunals for the adjudication of such cases. Number three, the state magistrates authorized by the Act of 1793 to deliver up fugitives from service or labor are not constitutional tribunals for that purpose. Number four, the Act of 1850 is unconstitutional in that it authorizes cases to be decided wholly on ex parte testimony. Number five, the provisions of the Act of 1850 requiring the exclusion of certain evidence are unconstitutional. Number six, the requirement of the Act of 1850 that the cases be adjudicated in a summary manner is unconstitutional. And number seven, the prohibition in the Act of 1850 on the issue of the writ of habeas corpus for the relief of those arrested under the Act is unconstitutional. Now, Spooner goes on to reason that if the Fugitive Slave Acts are unconstitutional, it follows that they are really no law at all. Furthermore, an officer of the government is an officer of the law only when he is proceeding according to the law. In other words, the federal government had no legitimate authority to enforce the unconstitutional Fugitive Slave Act. Spooner said, if it had been shown that the acts of 1793 and 1850 are unconstitutional, it follows that they can confer no authority upon the judges and marshals appointed to execute them. And those officers are, consequently, in law, mere ruffians and kidnappers who may be lawfully resisted by anybody and everybody, like any other ruffians and kidnappers who assail a person without any legal right. Now, he goes on to write, an unconstitutional statute is no law in the view of the Constitution. It is void and confers no authority on anyone. And whoever attempts to execute it does so at his peril. Mike Meharry says many in the founding generation came to a similar conclusion about any unconstitutional act. 
For instance, in Federalist Number 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote, There is no position which depends on clearer principles than that every act of a delegated authority contrary to the tenor of the commission under which it is exercised is void. No legislative act, therefore, contrary to the Constitution can be valid. James Iredell of North Carolina put it another way, saying, A law not warranted by the Constitution is a barefaced usurpation. Thomas Jefferson wrote, Whensoever the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. Now, Mike, Mag- Mike Meharry asks, But so what? Simply asserting that a law is unconstitutional and thus thus void doesn't change anything in practice. The government's all too happy to continue enforcing unconstitutional acts. So Spooner has already alluded to the only thing that can put teeth into constitutional assertions. Resistance. Spooner makes this point without equivocation. The right of the people, therefore, to resist an unconstitutional law is absolute and unqualified from the moment the law is enacted. Some will argue, <clears throat> some will argue rather, that resisting an unconstitutional act goes too far. They say we need to work within the system and get the law repealed. But Spooner says this is nonsense. This strategy tacitly acknowledges the, leg- the legitimacy of the law until it's repealed. So Spooner says to say that an unconstitutional law must be obeyed until it is repealed is saying that an un- unconstitutional law is just as obligatory as a constitutional one for the latter is binding only until it is repealed. There would therefore be no difference at all between a constitutional and an unconstitutional law in respect to their binding force, and that would be equivalent to abolishing the Constitution and giving to the government unlimited power. You can see why I like Spooner, can't you? The guy's logic is intense. Spooner calls the right to resist an unconstitutional act a constitutional right. He puts it this way, The exercise of the right is neither rebellion against the Constitution nor revolution. It is a maintenance of the Constitution itself by keeping the government within the Constitution. It's also a defense of the natural rights of the people against robbers and trespassers who attempt to set up their own personal authority and power in opposition to those of the Constitution and people which they were appointed to administer. End quote. Now, Mike Meharry says, but shouldn't we wait until a federal court strikes down a law as unconstitutional before resisting its enforcement? Well, Spooner didn't think so. He said there's not a syllable in the Constitution that makes a decision of the judiciary of its own force and without regard to its correctness binding upon anybody, either upon the executive or the people. Simply put, we can't count on judges to protect our rights or to protect the people from federal power. Spooner says, on the contrary, they have uniformly, probably without a solitary exception, proved themselves in all questions of this nature to be nothing but willing instruments of usurpation and oppression. They do not accept their offices with any other intention than that of holding all laws constitutional, which they suppose the legislature will pass. For nobody accepts an office unless with the intention of being obedient to those to whom they are amenable. Spooner goes on to write, a judicial decision as such, therefore, has no intrinsic authority at all. Its constitutional authority rests wholly upon its being in accordance with the Constitution. Bam! So how do we resist unconstitutional acts? I'm going to make you wait until uh, after the break here. Mike Meharry does have a couple very solid suggestions. You can also check out the article and share it if you would like. You'll find it in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a few moments.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, welcome back to the show. All right, let's jump right back into the conclusion of this article by Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center. By the way, this is a great resource. If you have a love of the Constitution, I would strongly recommend you you regularly check out what the Tenth Amendment Center has to offer. Support them. If you find yourself in agreement with what they're doing, I think that, that they do marvelous work. And Mike is a shining star among uh, a whole galaxy of some really, really great minds. So how do we resist unconstitutional acts? Well, uh, uh, Lysander Spooner called for jury nullification. Now, this is one of my favorites. Uh, This is what Spooner said. He said, it follows that under the trial by jury, no man can be punished for resisting the execution of any law unless the law be so clearly constitutional that a jury taken promiscuously from the mass of the people will all agree that it is constitutional. James Madison provided his own blueprint for resistance, suggesting that a refusal to cooperate or suggesting rather a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. Now, Mike Meharry says the federal government relies heavily on state cooperation to implement and enforce almost all of its laws, regulations, and acts, including gun control. By simply withdrawing this necessary cooperation, states and localities can nullify many federal actions in effect. As noted by the National Governors Association during the partial government shutdown of 2013, states are partners with the federal government on most federal programs. So resistance can come in many forms, but he says the bottom line is we must resist federal overreach. The Constitution will not and cannot enforce itself. Now, at the individual level, I understand this is going to sound kind of radical, but I'm going to say it anyway. That means sometimes you just have to be willing to say, I don't care. I don't care what the president's executive action is going to be. I don't care what, what Congress says. Right now, for instance, there are, there are a number of people at the federal level making big talk about how we're going to impose gun control. Damn it, it's time and enough children have died. I promise you this. They don't care about the children. It's not about public safety. What they care about is making sure that you and I do not have the option of saying no and having the means to back it up when they try to impose something on us worse than the lockdowns, worse than the mandates. I don't even I don't even know what they have cooked up. But the desperation with which they are trying to separate the American people from the ability to defend themselves tells me it can't be good. So my advice is ignore them. Now, that doesn't mean go out there and stick your chin out and dare them, hey, come arrest me. They'll try to make examples of a few people, but when enough people ignore them, what happens? Well, they find themselves more or less powerless. Case in point, you may not agree with medicinal marijuana or even recreational marijuana. How many states, though, have adjusted their laws to accommodate such things and, and in fact, are actually, you know, prospering in terms of uh, they're, they're no longer sending their police after people for mere possession of a plant. I mean, it's still federally uh, outlawed, but the feds at this point are powerless to do anything about it. Why? Because their cooperation with the states has come to a close. Why wouldn't that happen in other areas, for instance? Gun laws. Just a thought. 
All right, shifting gears. What would you do differently if you knew that we were in the early stages of a food crisis? Now, before I go one syllable further, I got to tell you, this is not about, uh, I don't want you scared. But I do want you to be aware. The situation is serious in that uh, it costs a lot more to feed your family right now. Not just to gas up your car, but to, to, you know, keep groceries on the table. It's getting more and more expensive. I mean, somebody told me yesterday uh, with this big fire at this, uh, this uh, egg farm in Minnesota over last weekend, you know, we're probably looking at the prospect of a dollar an egg kind of prices in the very near future. And the crazy thing about it to me is none of this seems to be just, well, it was just an accident or, you know, well, we had a bad harvest or whatever. There's a, there's a perfect storm that seems to be approaching of supply chain breakdowns and restrictions on fertilizer and sanctions against this country and that country. And we are, you know, I mean, look at the shortage of baby formula. Is that any indication that you live in a healthy society with a healthy economy? No, it's, it's regulatory interference. And it, it's, it's not likely to get better. Sorry if that scares you. I'm just trying to trying to be as honest as I can. I'm telling you this as your friend and not as somebody who's, you know, wanting to see you cringe in, in fear. I want to share a couple of thoughts here from Kit Knightley. This is from OffGuardian.org. About the created food crisis, the real agenda behind it. Kit says the created food crisis, whether real or a smoke and mirror psyop, is all about tearing down the global food system and building back better, where have we heard that before, a new dystopian food system built by corporate monoliths and rigidly controlled in the name of the greater good. Kit says, we're in the early stages of a food crisis. The press has been predicting this for years, but up until now, it has always appeared to be nothing more than fear-mongering designed to worry or distract people. But the signs are there that this time, to quote Joe Biden, it's going to be real. And nobody knows how bad it could get except the people who are creating it. Because the evidence is pretty clear, it's being deliberately and cold-bloodedly created. We've been documenting it for months, Kit says at uh, OffGuardian.org. We have Russia's special operation in Ukraine driving up the price of staple foods, wheat and sunflower oil, as well as fertilizer. We have the sudden bird flu outbreak driving up the price of poultry and eggs. The soaring price of oil is driving up the cost of food distribution. The inflation caused by huge influxes of fiat currency means families are spending more money on less food. And as all this is happening, the U.S. and the U.K., and maybe others we don't know, are literally paying farmers not to farm. It's pretty clear this is the Great Reset Food Edition. The lockdown melody with slightly different lyrics. A process of breaking down the structures already in place so we can build back better with more controlled and a more corporatized food system. Just as the COVID pandemic was said to highlight weaknesses in the multilateral system, so this food crisis will show that our unstable food systems are in need of reform. We need to ensure our food security or a thousand variations on that theme. But that's not supposition. They already started over a year ago. The Journal of Agriculture, Food Systems, and Community Developments published a paper in February 2021 titled Dismantling and Rebuilding the Food System After COVID-19. 10 Principles for Redistribution and Regeneration. In an interview from July last year, Ruth Richardson, the executive of executive director of the NGO Global Alliance for the Future of Food, literally said, our dominant food system needs to be dismantled and rebuilt. 
Later, in September 2021, the U.N. convened the first-ever Food Systems Summit, whose mission statement included the line, Rebuilding the food systems of the world will also enable us to answer the U.N. Secretary General's call to build back better from COVID-19. And writing in The Guardian two weeks ago, George Monbiot, weather vane for every uh, deep state agenda, states with his trademark lack of subtlety, the banks collapsed in 2008, and our food system is about to do the same. The system has to change. So what does that change and rebuild actually mean in this context? It means press and politicians alike will be pushing the World Economic Forum's planetary health diet. It'll mean conditioning children to eat bugs and seaweed. By the way, they're actually going to be pushing bugs as school lunch in the UK. It will mean increased pushing of gene-edited or genetically modified foods. It will mean stigmatizing meat eaters while perpetually fluffing veganism. It will mean promoting lab-grown meat, in quotation marks, and bacterial slime mixed in giant vats over natural food. It will mean carbon taxes on red meat and imported foods of all kinds. It will mean obesity taxes on foods high in sugar or fat. It will mean propaganda efforts to rebrand staple foods as luxuries. Almost all of these stories are just from the past month or so, many of them talking points at the World Economic Forum's Davos Conference. By the way, there's links to every one of those things I just listed off for you. Kit Knightley says, as is almost always the case, the problem to which they're currently reacting already has a series of preordained solutions. And I'm, I'm going to tap the brakes here because I'm not going to have time to share the whole article with you, but I really would encourage you, check this out for yourself. I mean, they've just announced the building of the largest cultured meat factory in the world. Bill Gates is now the largest owner of agricultural land in the United States. Land on which he can grow new Franken crops or which the U.S. government will pay him not to use. Bottom line is the play is clear. Right now, the powers that be, not just here but worldwide, are getting ready to tear all our old food systems down with the stated aim of building them back better. By which they mean better for them and not for us. Now, just hypothetically, if you knew that was true or if you believed that it even might be true, what steps would you be taking to better secure your ability to feed yourself and your family? Now, I'm talking things like gardening, small livestock, food storage. Might be a good time to start taking some of those steps, you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. Perhaps you've heard some rumors about this regular gathering of wrong thinkers. Get together to question the official narratives. Talk amongst themselves. Think outside the box. Engage in independent thought. Challenge the narratives. Yep, yep, this is the place. Pull up a chair. Glad you're with us. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a day-to-day basis. Let me give a quick shout-out to them. They include Dixie Chiropractic, also HSLAmmo.com. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, 
lifesavingfood.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There's a special link, actually a section of links, in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, which will connect you with each and every one of them. And I would encourage you, if you find value, any kind of value, whether it makes you laugh or makes you smile, even if it makes you cry but still leaves you a little bit more enlightened, please take the time to let these sponsors know that their message is reaching your ears. All right, here's a question to, uh, to kind of get things started for us here. How broken would the system have to get in order for most people to stop believing in it? You understand what I'm talking about? I mean, there, I, I can't tell you how many times I've presented someone with an example of, well, here's why I don't trust the system in this matter, whether it be, you know, masks, whether it be, you know, vax mandates, whether it be foreign policy, whatever it is. I give an example And it seems like even people who, you know, would say, well, I'm a conservative, I'm a small government, uh, you know, individual, I love freedom, I love God, I love my country. Nonetheless, they will still look for a reason to believe. But, you know, there's a a reasonable explanation why this is so and, and, you know, and why I shouldn't stop believing in the system. But sometimes it just takes a really good story to illustrate just how broken the system is. And for this, I am very indebted to Charles Hugh Smith. His essay, Who's Going to Fix What's Broken, gives you such a great feel of just how crazy it can be. And and if you live in California, as you're going to hear, um, you probably know this already. It's probably not as bad if you're not in California, but uh, listen to his experience here. The bottom line when he says who's going to fix what's broken is that when nobody cares that systems are broken down and there's no will or interest in fixing essential systems, there's there's not going to be a happy ending. So Charles Hugh Smith asks, who fixes systems when they break down? And the answer appears to be nobody. So here are three everyday examples from his own life, breakdowns which may be random and rare, but which the odds suggest are systemic. He says, let's assume I'm not an unlucky one in a million, but just another recipient of systemic breakdown. Number one, U.S. mail forwarding six months late. Millions of Americans move every year in the U.S. Postal Service, like other large-scale systems uh, uh, serving the public, has a system that automates change of address forms online. Now, he says, my previous experience is that mail forwarding might be a week or two late, but it's been reliable. In 2021, not so much. He says, we left a car in storage in California in the COVID lockdown, and family obligations made it necessary to deal with it at a later date. It's old, and it's not worth much, and since we'd filed a planned non-operation registration with the DMV, the registration fee was $23 a year. Now, he says, if I'd anticipated USPS mail forwarding to completely break down, I would have signed up online for California DMV email notices. But I assumed mail forwarding was functional. Alas, we received our 2021 auto registration notices sent in May 2021 in late November, long after the renewal deadline in early June. The mail wasn't a week or two late, it was six months late. That's a breakdown. And that's when the breakdown of California's DMV system revealed itself rather ingloriously. For instance, he says, your non-operational car in storage must be insured and pass a smog certification test. Now, Charles Hugh Smith says, I've noticed many local government agencies are no longer satisfied to simply charge a late fee for a tardy payment. Their responses are designed to punish the tardy public far beyond the sin of missing a deadline for a payment or filing a form. 
the California DMV strips away the option to register a car as non-operational once you're 90 days late in registering the vehicle. Now, this doesn't mean your non-operational car magically becomes operational and can be driven to a smog certification station. It just means you've entered DMV no-exit purgatory. Your car can't be smog certified, therefore it can't be registered, and so it drops completely out of the DMV online system. Not only is the car non-operational in this case, but he says we weren't there to deal with it. Now, California has tens of millions of residents, about 39 million, and millions of registered vehicles. 675,000 people moved out of California in 2021, and some percentage probably left cars in storage, what with the 2020 COVID travel restrictions and other issues. He says, I find it difficult to believe that I'm the only individual who missed the deadline to register my non-operational vehicle as non-operational, but the DMV has no system response other than demanding a $214 late fee (laughs) that you register the vehicle as operational. And trying to get the DMV to acknowledge a DMV change of address form is an epic in and of itself. Submit a paper form or an online form, neither one can be relied on. He says, sending correspondence to the DMV asking for help in fixing this problem is like sending letters to the dead letter dumpster. Some DMV staffer decided to get my case off their desk by arbitrarily declaring the car had been registered in another state. This led to the absurdity of the DMV demanding a document from the Hawaii DMV proving the car, which I'd repeatedly stated was non-operational in California storage, hadn't been transported to Hawaii. In other words, it became my job to fix the absurd errors of the DMV staff. When the public has to go through endless hoops to fix problems created solely by the public agency itself, this is a Kafka-esque breakdown in public service. So he says, I finally located an online DMV portal which accelerated the seven-month back-and-forth going nowhere to a week of endless emails and submittals of documents. Of documents, rather. Now, could the DMV have pointed him to this portal in the previous seven months? One would think so, but the answer is apparently not. So after seven-plus months of completely needless churn, a waste of his time and the time of DMV staffers, the DMV decided to issue us a non-operational registration for the non-operational car. Now, what difference does it make to the DMV if the non-operational car is in storage and if it's registered 91 days late or 209 days late? As long as the outrageous late fee is paid, what benefit to the public interest is served by creating a no-exit purgatory where the owner can neither register the non-operational car as non-operational or get the car running and get the smog certification? Well, the answer is none. The DMV just wasted its own staff on a completely useless seven-plus-month travesty of a mockery of a sham of public service. Oh, and this is example number three. We cashed the tax payment attached to your 2021 tax return, but you didn't submit a 2021 tax return. He says, I've tried everything to reach the IRS and solve problems not of my own making, but nothing has worked. I've waited patiently on the phone. I found the staff courteous and trying to be helpful, but unable to get the problem resolved. I've gone to the local office and been told we can't handle that. Contact the regional office. The latest of the first fiasco, he says, was trying to register online to pay my taxes. Now, one would imagine the IRS would make every effort to make paying your taxes easy. But this wasn't his experience. He says, for reasons beyond my feeble grasp, the IRS recommended I open an EFTPS tax payment account. 
This proved impossible for a reason which only became clear after their repeated failures, a reason which the courteous IRS staff couldn't see on their screens. The IRS online system only recognizes my 2016 tax year. Entering data from 2017, 2018, 2019, or 2020 shunted me into a, the data you provided does not match our records, dead end. No explanations or help were offered. If only the IRS phone staff had been able to tell me, just enter the data from your 2016 tax return. A huge amount of completely useless churn could have been avoided. And he walks you through, I mean, he gives you example after example of of what that exchange with the IRS was like. So what's the takeaway from these experiences? Well, number one, he says, the systems that were reliable are no longer reliable. Number two, the breakdowns are incredibly difficult to fix within the system. Number three, the fixes consume an enormous, completely unproductive amount of time and effort, not just on his part, but also on those who are being paid by the taxpayers. Number four, digitizing records and automating online services hasn't led to reliable, efficient systems optimized to solve problems. And number five, nobody in the system or in the political hierarchy has any interest in the deep overhaul required to actually restore these systems' reliability, efficiency, and ability to fix problems. So who's going to fix what's broken? Charles Hugh Smith says the answer is no one. When the systems we rely on, the postal service, the vehicle registration system, the uh, internal revenue system, the tax payment system, that is, when they no longer function reliably or effectively, where does that take us as a society? Where does that take the economy? When nobody cares that systems have broken down and there's no will or interest in fixing essential systems, there is no happy ending. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to send my thanks out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you or someone you know is looking to secure a home loan anywhere in the state of Utah or anywhere in the state of Idaho, for that matter, please steer them to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I've saved some good stuff for this hour of the show. And I hope uh, I hope this is... Stuff that makes you think. You don't have to agree. There's never an implication that you you must agree if I'm sharing this with you. But there are some some great things uh, that uh, there's some great resources sources that I found that can help provide a little better understanding of what's happening. And if you're one of those people who wants to zoom out and get the big picture from thirty thousand feet, what's happening in the world? I got a great article for you from Thomas Luongo. Big questions we should all be asking geopolitically. Tom Luongo says, to say the current events are messy today would be the height of understatement. Every day the headlines blare at us some new set of contradictory data points, convincing us of some lie that serves someone's purpose. And he says, no matter how hard we try to keep up with things, cutting out the extraneous to find the nuggets of signal from the jungle of noise is more than a full-time job. Sometimes, however, it's best to take a few steps back fall back on first principles, and remind ourselves who the players are, what they want, and then ask the big question of each of them, are they succeeding? 
But he says, even to ask that question, we have to ask ourselves honestly the following question. What will they be willing to do to survive under present circumstances? Now, Tom Luongo says, this is the most uncomfortable question you can ever ask anyone. What would you do to survive, to protect your family, your position, your conception of yourself? His point is that everyone's morality has limits. Everyone. Everyone has a shadow, a dark side, a place where they retreat to their Hobbesian self and see the world purely in terms of a war of all against all. Anyone who refuses to admit this to, admit this to themselves, he says, is someone you should run screaming from. Those that would always claim the moral high ground, who are always the goodies, are those without limits on their behavior. As the great H.L. Mencken proclaimed nearly 70 years ago, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Power is what all messiahs really sink, seek, rather, not the chance to serve. This is true even of the pious brethren who carry the gospel to foreign parts. So Tom Luongo says that's the context in which we have to ask that question. What will they do? And of course the answer is, whatever they have to. So he says, this is why I never rule out anything in my analysis. It's why I'm willing to leap five or six steps ahead to the big move. Because that's the limit of the behavior of the group under study. Today it may be Davos, tomorrow it may be the Fed, the day after it's Russia. They all have a preferred end state, a solution to their personal equation, with their own set of input variables. Now he says, for me, I see this as a set of differential equations to be solved. We want all of them or we all want them to reduce to a set of outcomes that will leave someone closer to their preferred outcome. And the scary part for all of us should be realizing that not only is there no single set of outcomes here where everyone is maximized, there isn't even a win-lose condition here. There are only losers. Us. Because the first rule of any organization is self-survival. Throw the mission statements, corporate bloviating, and HR virtue signaling into the dumpster fire. At the end of the day, all that matters is survival. Only when that is secure as it can be, an organization begins thinking beyond its collective lizard brain. No different than you or me. And he says at this point, every major faction has been reduced to this. Their event horizon is just out of reach, striving for it, almost half there. But like Zeno's paradox, never reaching it because it was never attainable in the first place. Now he says, what I fear more than anything else... What I see from too many people analyzing the intersection of geopolitics, markets, and ideology is complacency. There's a stunning amount of normalcy bias in the punditocracy. Too much cooler heads will prevail, and not enough everyone's got a plan until they're punched in the mouth. So when you're thinking about Davos and their stated goals for the Great Reset and saving the world from climate change, do you really think there's a limit to their behavior? Do you really think they wouldn't start a nuclear war, unleash a virulent plague, or engineer a cure that's worse than the disease, create a false flag mass shooting at a school, or leak a Supreme Court opinion? Tom Luongo says, when thinking about the Federal Reserve in the context of an unprecedented assault on its autonomy and the commercial banking interests it was created to protect, do you really think at this point in time they wouldn't engender an economic collapse to save themselves from another group, say Davos, from destroying it? So everyone pontificating about how the Fed only has one or two more rate hikes in them, because that's what the models say, that's what the Fed's past behavior supposedly tells them. What will you tell your clients when the Fed hikes that fourth time by 50 basis points? 
or accelerates the run rate of, uh, of QT to $125 billion per month and allows the U.S. 10-year note to rise to 6%, 8%, 10%. Are you going to shrug and say, oh, sorry, my bad? When faced with the prospect of a nuclear rearmed Ukraine in bed with neoconservative ideologues in Congress and a U.S. State Department committed to a singular vision of hegemony for the planet, would Russia not fight a vicious war of attrition using World War II artillery tactics to grind their adversaries into paste while grimly pledging itself to their eradication? What about the terminally corrupt and morally bankrupt congressional leaders on Capitol Hill? who have gotten personally rich and weaved an immense web of BS so vast and encumbering, we can barely keep track of even the surface-level details. Would they not do anything to protect their malfeasance from breaking free from the containment of plausible deniability, which is the true coin of the realm in D.C.? He says newly confirmed FOMC chair Jerome Powell was summoned by President-Select Biden to the White House to have a chat about the economy. Biden and the Democrats are scared to death of this fall. Biden obviously wants Powell to stop hiking rates. The Democrats only want to lose 40 seats in the House in November. That's all the vote fraud infrastructure George Soros' money pays for. Powell's barely even begun the tightening cycle, and these people are shamelessly, after holding up his confirmation for a year, after playing the most egregious power politics in the Fed's history, summoning Powell like a dog to the White House and saying, don't hurt our chances this fall. He says, if I'm Powell, I'm smiling like the Cheshire Cat before vanishing into the bowels of the Mariner Eccles building and considering a 75 point ba- uh, uh, 75 basis point hike just for the lulls. Or he could see his shadow, get spooked and cut a deal. But at this point, with who? Who do you cut a deal with? Bondholders? Davos? Biden? Who? Tom Luongo says, seriously, this is what our politics is reduced to by these venal Davos-controlled half-wits? And there are people out there still engaging in One Sigma thinking? Luongo says, I've been telling you for a year that no one is asking the right questions about what the Fed is willing to do. Not just to save itself, but possibly the much larger goal of breaking the people who are intentionally breaking the world for their benefit. Too many can't get past the budget or tax receipt numbers, the bond markets, stocks. The Fed couldn't possibly burn all that down, could they? Those unwilling to ask that question seriously are those that keep looking away from the abyss because the abyss stares back. They refuse to contemplate what happens when the board state is so screwed up, when the Jenga tower that fragile, the only winning move is to nudge the table and watch it all come crashing down. He says the Fed has looked into this abyss in the past, in the past rather, and they've always shied away. But that was when there was still time. Davos has pushed us to the brink of societal collapse across the West. It has refused to even contemplate they are the abyss. And because of that, the Fed may be staring at the heroic chance of jumping in and letting us pick up the pieces. He says, the question I have for them is, or for the question I have for you is simple then. What are you prepared to become if that happens? We already know what the big players are doing. I read this and what it makes me think about is how well do I know my own conscience? Have I drawn a clear line about what I would be willing to do to provide for myself and my family? I know that's a tough thing to contemplate, but I think it's something that it might be wise to think about now rather than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, drop me your email. Just click the subscribe button in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Send me your email. I will send you a copy of the show notes with all the appropriate links that you can then follow at your leisure to better understand what's going on and what your options are, as well as things to inspire you and hopefully, you know, give you some reasons to celebrate. By the way, great sponsors include people like HSLAmmo.com. I hope that you'll click on their link, avail yourself of some of their high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. They've got a great website. They've got a great product. I hope to get Spencer, their their owner, back on the show with me to talk about uh, financial stuff, frugality, and that sort of thing. I think that's actually a, a very timely topic, and just got to nail down a time when the busiest guy in southern Utah, that being Spencer, is is able to join me. But uh, I will get him back on the show here sometime soon. Got a couple of uh, articles I want to share in the, the closing two segments here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about why lax gun laws are not the reason that we're seeing killing sprees. In fact, there there is a reason out there. And as Stephen Baskerville explains, uh, very few people dare say this reason out loud. For some reason, this is terribly controversial. The real reason mass shooters kill. Stephen Baskerville says, Tucker Carlson almost said it. He went right up to the edge and then drew back. He wheeled the cannon on stage, but he did not fire it. Carlson almost blurted out the most taboo truth in Washington, the unutterable heresy that the political class suppresses more ruthlessly than any other. He asked us to consider, after eliminating all the standard leftist cliches and a few rightist ones, why do these young shooters keep committing mass murder? What characteristic do they all share? What is going on here? Why can we not even discuss it? Now, Baskerville says Carlson knows the answer. He knows because he is too intelligent not to know. Furthermore, he knows because I've written about it in his newspaper repeatedly, and so have others. So there's no need to prove it again now. In fact, he says he even invited me on his PBS show to discuss it just before they canned him. So he knows full well that if he states it, he will be eliminated from Fox News as fast as, well, as fast as I was dismissed from multiple university posts when I persisted in writing about it. It seems almost as if he was inviting someone to say what he could not. So he says, I will oblige him. The shooters, the mass murderers, even most of the terrorists and essentially all violent criminals plus many drug addicts and a majority of the homeless, share this one quality. They are fatherless. And no, fatherlessness is not intractable. These destructive and self-destructive adolescents are not victims of impersonal forces that defy remedy, still less of irresponsible fathers who abandon them, as the political class invariably reports without evidence. These falsehoods provide the politicians with excuses to throw up their hands in despair or devise useless, self-serving programs that actually make the problem worse. The shooters are the products of government policies that intentionally remove children from their fathers and proliferate single-mother homes. They are the offspring of the two hatcheries that breed fatherless children, the welfare state and the divorce industry. Now, Stephen Baskerville says the science is unequivocal. Virtually every major social pathology can be laid at the door of fatherless homes and communities. Not race, not poverty. Single parent homes. That means crime, truancy, addiction, and more single parents. 
Decade after decade, the problem only worsens until we're left with not only social chaos, but increasingly political chaos, too, and even tyranny. It is easily demonstrable that the BLM riots in 2020 that prepared the way for the leftist takeover of the U.S. government were perpetrated by violent, dysfunctional, and fatherless adolescents. The problem will certainly not be ameliorated by feel-good palliatives like those implemented by the Clinton-Bush administrations and recently once again enacted in Florida. These programs claim to confront fatherlessness, but in reality funnel more money to the welfare apparatchiks and divorce operators so they can create more fatherless children, on which their business depends. So diabolical is the political class in both political parties that it devises measures to exacerbate the problem in the very process of pretending to address it. If conservatives don't like liberals' explanations and solutions for shootings or gun control, and they should not, they'd better come up with their own, and it'd better be something more plausible than ever more incarceration. Sometimes the left and right seem to compete or even collude in seeing who can devise the most authoritarian punishments rather than face reality and accept the only solutions. Now, he says, conservatives do have a better explanation readily at hand, the only one. It is a stock conservative platitude that family breakdown will mean civilizational breakdown. Yet, now that that is is happening, they ignore the fulfillment of their own prophecies. Instead, they enact pointless programs designed by the liberals, fatherhood and marriage promotion, psychotherapy, child support enforcement, and other make-work for functionaries. And he asks, why? Because fatherhood and pro-family groups also make good money on those programs that do more harm than good. Because Republican lawyers, including Christian ones, amass huge sums looting families through divorce. Because conservative leaders fear feminists and lack the spine to stand up to them. Because vast powers accrue to judicial operators, including Republican ones as the divorce juggernaut systematically rolls over every limitation on expanding judicial power. Now, he says, fatherless is not insoluble, and neither is mass violence. They can be overcome, but not on the cheap. We must summon the courage to confront the divorce and welfare lobbies, especially within the Republican Party. The multiple multiple excuses we devise is the proof that so far we lack the courage, as Carlson says, to even discuss it. So says Stephen Baskerville, professor of political studies at the Collegium Inter Intermarium in Warsaw. I know he focuses primarily on the on the political aspect, and I, and I don't disagree with him on that. But I think there's there's a broader implication here that uh, reaches right down to the individual level, and this is nothing that. Uh, you know, I, I can't point at this and say, and it's, you know, of course, I none of this applies to me, but I think that uh, you and I have far more influence and power in this regard. If there's, if there's a, a plague of fatherlessness in our land, that's something that we have the ability to, to do something about. Now, I understand there, there are circumstances that arise, there are homes that are broken, and, and the intent here is not to add pain or to add difficulty to those who, for whatever reason, find themselves in single-parent homes. There are times where that, uh, that breakup is a necessary, albeit painful, remedy to an intolerable situation. But it seems like there was a time 
when we placed a great deal of uh, sanctity upon marriage. I like how Joseph uh, Sobrand put it. You know, we never talked about safe sex. When sex was confined by societal norm and social mores to the marriage relationship. You didn't have to. Yeah, there were people out there who, you know, who for whatever reason, you know, did not confine their sexual behavior to uh, within within the marriage relationship. But the expectation was if you want to be a decent person, you learn how to delay gratification and you you don't go out there and sleep around and sire children that you then run off and leave for somebody else else to raise. You just don't do that. Those norms have broken down. And the best example I can think of as far as how to fix that problem is to make sure that the children who are growing up within your circle of influence, it may be your kids, it may very likely be your grandkids, depending on what stage of life you're at, they need to see functional marriage relationships that work. Husband and wife, family, looking out for each other. Dads, we've got to be a part of our kids' lives. I've, I've been guilty of, uh, well, but I'm making a living for them. I'm, what I'm doing, I'm doing for them. I can't tell you how grateful I am that there was a point where my dear wife called me out while my kids were still young and pointed out to me that your kids are growing up without you. Because I was making good money and I was having a great time working my tail off and, and seeing what I think was, was some real success. But I was doing it at the expense of I left home before my kids woke up in the morning and I got home usually after they'd gone to bed at night. I certainly felt productive, but I was missing something that was super important. And I'm not going to pretend that, you know, when I made that realization and I started devoting more time and spending more time with my kids, all of our problems went away. They didn't. And we have challenges the same as anybody else. I guess the the most positive benefit that I noticed was that's when I started to measure my wealth by how much time I was actually spending with my kids and how involved I was able to be in their lives. And I was mildly surprised to find out how wealthy I actually was when I started measuring, you know, my success in that way. Could I do a better job? Absolutely. But the point is I recognized what needed to be done and started doing it, albeit imperfectly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to mention lifesavingfood.com? There is a link in my show notes. You click on it, it'll take you right to their website. I think you'll know what to do from there. Start shopping, kick some tires, look around. If you see something that uh, seems like the right thing, well, consider making the purchase. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how the ruling class and the media are just milking gun control for all they're worth. Now, of course, they're doing this under this desire to protect us from harm. I don't think that's the case. In fact, I'm going to defer to Brandon Smith, who in his most recent article says, recent events only reinforce the need for gun rights and community militias. Ooh, 
That's a word you don't often hear without uh, people getting a little bit nervous. But I want you to hear what he has to say. Brandon Smith says, I want to stress a very important point first and foremost because I don't think the political left and the average gun grabber understands the gravity of the situation and they need to be educated. He says, liberty advocates will never give up their guns. It's not going to happen. We have drawn a line in the sand when it comes to the Second Amendment and we are not going to move, not even an inch. It doesn't matter what legislation or executive orders Joe Biden promotes. It does not matter if there are future criminal events involving firearms. There is no scenario in which we are going to hand over our ability to defend ourselves and rely on government alone. All the indignant wailing and preaching from anti-gun leftists is for naught. They will get nothing. Now, he says, gun rights are integral to a free society because they act as a deterrent to potential government overreach and authoritarianism. Tyrants might infiltrate politics and take over governments, and they might even think they have the ability to oppress the public. But they will never be quite sure they can get away with it as long as the public has the means to reach out and touch them from a distance. They will always have doubts, and this is vital for freedom. When tyrants have doubts, liberty prevails. Now, he says, I covered the issue of incoming gun bans in the latest issue of my newsletter, The Wild Bunch Dispatch. But he says, I wanted to examine here the wider implications of disarmament, including the consequences and what they'll be if we were to comply and what the establishment should fear when most of us don't. Brandon Smith says, I've said for many years now that I am certain anti-gun interests will try to disarm the American people before 2030, simply because they must. They cannot achieve the implementation of the Great Reset or the New World Order, their terminology from their own mouths, without first taking away our ability to fight back. They know that if they do not disarm Americans, they will eventually fail. And it's really that easy to understand. If we keep our guns, we will win. If we let our guns be taken, we will lose. One thing must be made abundantly clear in this debate. Gun crimes are irrelevant to gun rights. They do not matter in terms of the Constitution, nor should they matter. Our rights supersede the political, or the potential, rather, for abuse by bad people, and they supersede the whims of government. Now, the political left seems to think, well, gun crime is all that matters. They obsess over every single tragedy, not because they actually care about the victims or the families involved, but because they assume that each gun crime is a kind of currency that they can use to pay for the eventual purchase of the Second Amendment. They think they can buy the option to erase our gun rights using the lives of shooting victims as a trade. And he says, I'm sorry to have to inform them, but that's not how it works. That's not how it will ever work. And if they think they can force the issue, then there are millions of us in the liberty movement that will teach them a painful lesson in humility. There will come a day when they'll wish they'd been more reasonable and not turn to authoritarianism. In the meantime, they will try every trick in the book to con the public into thinking that incremental measures or executive orders are needed as a means to save lives. They won't save lives. They'll only lead to the disarmament of the population, making it easier to subjugate us and eliminate resistance. The key to understanding gun control laws is to accept the reality that gun grabbers have no intention of staying satisfied with common-sense gun control. They will only be satisfied with gun confiscation. This is why no quarter can be given to them. No compromises, no diplomacy, nothing. It's important to clarify where gun rights advocates are coming from because leftists don't get it. They are perfectly willing to give up their freedoms in exchange for false security. So he says, let me put it this way. 
history shows us that the disarmament of any population or subset of a population is eventually followed by the oppression and often genocide of that same population. Statistically, disarmament has led to some of the worst mass murders in the history of humanity. We risk losing far more lives by giving up our guns than we risk by keeping our guns. Now, by extension, a common argument among gun grabbers is that other Western nations have extensive gun restrictions and they don't have tyranny. But he says, I beg to differ. As we recently witnessed with the COVID mandates and the attempted vaccine passports, many governments from the EU to Australia and New Zealand took the mask off, pun intended, and showed their true totalitarian colors to the point that they even created COVID camps where people were locked up without due process. Now, Brandon Smith says, I would argue that had it not been for the growing opposition among conservatives in the U.S. and in parts of Canada, the COVID mandate would still be alive today and most of our freedoms would be erased. The opposition in the U.S. is the reason why medical tyranny was scrapped throughout through most of the world. For if we can be free despite the existence of COVID, then so can everyone else. And that's how conservatives were able to defeat the mandates. Ultimately, it's because we have guns. But what about the deaths of children in Uvalde or elsewhere? Don't they matter? Well, of course they do. And every pro-gun person out there agrees. What we don't agree on is the idea that government should have a monopoly on security and on force. Because when government has a monopoly on force, millions of people die instead of dozens. In reality, the events in Uvalde prove once again that the defenders of the Second Amendment are right. Reports from the scene of the shooting now indicate the police actually failed to stop the shooter, Salvador Ramos, from entering Robb Elementary School, and they were ordered to stay outside and do nothing as the shooter moved freely for over an hour. Ramos was finally stopped by a single Border Patrol agent who went in on his own. Adding insult to injury, police used force to prevent parents and community members from going in and doing the job they refused to do. Now, he says, I want to point out the fact that police were ordered to stay out and to keep people out. That's not an excuse. Some orders should be ignored, and if you don't ignore them, then you are partly responsible for the consequences. And he says, I suggest two simple solutions that could have saved lives in Uvalde without erasing our constitutional rights. First, if public schools removed their gun-free zone status and allowed teachers to conceal carry, then Ramos would likely have been dead before harming a single child. Or he would have at least faced opposition and been cornered. Second, if community militias still existed in the U.S. as the Constitution demands, then parents could have organized a much faster response and walked right over any police that refused to go in and do what needed to be done. Parents are allowed to risk their lives for their children, and anyone that says otherwise should be ignored or trampled. The answer to crime of all kinds, not just crimes that involve guns, is more community involvement and a visible armed presence. We need more people to be armed and more individual responsibility for the security of those that cannot defend themselves. A gun ban will not protect us from crime. It only encourages tyranny. It also doesn't matter because there's nothing that Biden or the political left can do to take our guns away. Our solutions need to be tried, and there's a reason why gun grabbers refuse to acknowledge any alternatives, because they don't care about protecting the innocent. They only care about eliminating a portion of the Constitution that has long prevented them from gaining more power. So Brandon Smith pulls out the stops here, and he says, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. 
further encroachments on the Second Amendment will lead to war. Leftists might recognize or might welcome this rather in the uh, assumption that they have the government and the military on their side, but they may not realize that many in the military are also gun rights supporters. They also might have forgotten the results of asymmetric wars in places like Afghanistan. And frankly, many Americans have far better gear and much better training than the Taliban. This will not end well for anti-gun authoritarians. Now, I get it if that makes you a little bit nervous. Oh, but you said the word militia, and the militias are bad. I would point you back to two years ago when there were, uh, you know, there, the BLM riots were taking place and Antifa was just running roughshod over communities all over the country. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, I remember there was, uh, there was a pretty credible threat that uh, groups from Washington State were going to come over and Antifa was going to come and, and uh, bring a taste of, uh, of their medicine to, to the folks here, here in uh, Idaho. And members of the community turned out armed. Now, I know some people think, what, what are you talking about? You know, a bunch of rednecks running around, toting guns? Well, I don't know. Some of them may have looked like rednecks. A lot of them just looked like normal people. There were bikers and others that came. But here's the bottom line. Antifa did not show up. A community turned out in a peaceful display of armed resistance and made it very clear that kind of crap is not going to fly here. And Antifa wisely took the hint and went somewhere else. This is The Brian Hyde Show.